Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. Religious liberty has been called for centuries now as the first right. And it's not just an American thing. It doesn't matter where it's listed in anyone's Bill of Rights or, or Constitution. Freedom of religion has been called the first right because essentially it is the freedom of conscience. It says that it is not a good thing for humans to violate their own consciences. The freedom of religion is very important even for our atheist friends because it says you have this freedom of conscience. We do not want you to act contrary uh, to what your conscience says. You are free to follow through with what you believe peaceably within our society. Uh, Baptists, which we are, FBC, the B stands for Baptist. Baptists have historically been extremely strong proponents of freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, uh, because we have understood since the beginning that it damages the soul when you coerce, force, uh, or otherwise make someone violate their conscience. Because, see, God gave us the conscience as kind of like the last stopgap measure for doing bad things. Uh, it's not the end-all, be-all. If your conscience says something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true or not. Uh, but, but your conscience is like the last fail-safe uh, before there's a cata- some cataclysmic failure. Uh, the conscience is kind of like, I don't know if you've seen these on like Amazon, but for $5, you can buy a piece of plastic, and you can put it over the overfill valve in your tub, right? So that you can fill the tub just a little bit higher, right? And imagine what that does over time, right? What that $5 little piece of plastic does, right? You go and fill the tub and you're like, okay, I'm going to have a nicer, nicer, deeper bath now. It's fine, right? So the first time you fill the bathtub, no problem. The second time you fill up the bathtub, no problem. Maybe the 20th time you fill up the bathtub, no problem. There is a point where you fill it up just like you always do, and you put that little piece of plastic over there, and eventually what happens? You forget that you turn the water on. It flows over, and that $5 piece of plastic costs what? Hundreds of dollars in damage? No. Thousands of dollars in damage? No. Tens of thousands of dollars in damage. Your conscience is like that. It is like that emergency overfill. And if we train people to violate their conscience, even when they're wrong, and we're right, What eventually happens is something catastrophic. They're changing their souls. They're training their souls not to listen to their conscience. And so Baptists, we have strongly believed, and Christians have strongly believed in the freedom of conscience, even when other people are wrong, as long as their conscience is peaceable, even when they're wrong. Because if you start training your soul to violate that freedom of conscience, eventually you will be wrong about some moral issue and you will not listen and there will be cataclysm for your own soul and for the people around you. You will do things morally that are unbelievable, but it's because you plugged that up with a $5 little stopgap thing you got on Amazon. All around the world, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience has always been under attack. We see our brothers and sisters in China where the Chinese government is uh, literally uh, bulldozing our brothers and sisters' churches down while they're inside having church services. Uh, We see them uh, abducting uh, pastors and putting them in black op prisons, never to be seen again. Uh, In Indonesia, the... uh, uh, the persecution is, is incredible there. In India, the persecution has been ramping up. It's been getting uh, difficult. A lot of Christians are left homeless as their homes are burned down. 
in um, play, know, Nigeria, places like uh, uh, Myanmar, uh, places like Vietnam. The, the persecution is, is hard. The, that freedom of religion, that freedom of conscience uh, is, is fought against over and over again. In our own country, uh, we have incredible freedom. But there are challenges to religious freedom every now and again. And those are hard to deal with. What should we do? What should believers in God do? What should Christians do when the freedom of religion, when religious liberty is threatened? What do we do? Uh, Typically, according to modern psychology, we're going to respond to threats in three ways. I know this is oversimplification, but it's an accurate oversimplification. We fight, or we take flight, or we freeze, right? You, you, you fight, and, and you say, we're not going to stand for this, and you use whatever tools and weapons you can to, to, to go against it, or you run away, and you're like, oh, I'm not going to deal with this problem. This problem's too big, so I'm going to pretend that I was never part of the problem. Or you freeze, and you just pretend the problem's not there. What should Christians do when religious liberty is threatened? So as we go to the book of Daniel... Uh, we're in the apocalyptic section of the book of Daniel. As we talked extensively last week, you can go look it up on YouTube, and, and you can go look at, uh, at uh, my, my preliminary thoughts on apocalyptic literature. But what apocalyptic literature is, uh, it, as Daniel's writing here, it is a highly metaphoric, highly symbolic uh, genre of scripture that communicates God's deep truths through a lot of symbols. And so that's what we're seeing here today. I'll work our way along. And because it's apocalyptic and highly symbolic, we're going to jump around the text just a little bit so that we can track what's happening with these visions Daniel has. So now this is back in time from where we were in chapter 6. He's still in the Babylonian kingdom. King Belshazzar, the worthless murderer assassin king, is in control. Israel's concerned about their future because this is an awful, terrible king. And that's where we pick up the story today. Chapter 8, verse 1. Read along with me in your Bibles. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and what I, when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. I was considering this, and behold, a a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heavens. Okay, so the image that, that Daniel's given us here, he sees this ram, it's got two horns, one horn's bigger than the other. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the Medo-Persian was kind of a conglomerate of people, but the Persians were the greater, so much so that the Persians eventually became 
you know, the Medo-Persian alliance became the Persian empire. It, the Medo part just kind of got dropped. And so that's the image. So here, Daniel is seeing that the Persian kingdom, it's going, it's conquering everything. Eventually, it's going to conquer the Babylonian Empire. Nothing can stop it. But then this goat, this angry goat comes out of nowhere, and it's so angry, it hovers on the ground. Its feet don't even touch the ground. Uh, so it's like this, just this flying goat. It's like, and goes, and it's got this conspicuous horn, and it just destroys the ram. Uh, nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. Wow, what does this mean? And eventually the, the horn on the ram gets broken into four pieces. This is weird. So let's look at the interpretation. Verse 15 says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Okay, so Gabriel gives him, and this is the same Gabriel who told about the coming birth of Jesus to, uh, to Mary. Gabriel gives Daniel this vision. And he, he gives him the, the, uh, the explanation of the vision. He says, oh, it, it's pretty simple. The ram, that's the Medo Persian army that's about to come. They're going to take over everything, and it seems like nothing can stop them. But out of nowhere, this goat's going to come, and that's Greece. And he's got this one horn, and that one horn is a ruler. And the ruler, that, that one ruler is going to fight, and he's going to be swift, so swift, his feet don't even touch the ground. But then at the height of his power, he's going to die. And then there'll be four horns. And from history, we understand that. The, the Persian Empire was huge and, and unstoppable. And then out of nowhere, Alexander the Great comes and just marches and decimates everything in the ancient Near East and beyond and just takes it over. I mean, his, his ability was incredible. Uh, and event, but eventually, Alexander the Great kind of died prematurely, and his kingdom was broken into four pieces, which were not nearly as strong as uh, the Greek Empire. So that's, that's what he's saying. And here, I mean, Daniel, he is, uh, he's a Jewish man living in exile, looking at everything going, wow, where is Israel in this whole story? Right? Don't you ever feel powerless? You turn on the news and you're like, okay, what can I do here? Right? You watch the, the, the war happening in Russia and Ukraine and you're like, man, someone's got to do something about that. But you, it's not you or me. I feel powerless. Uh, you see, uh, you see the, um, the struggles on, on the news, and you're like, man, some, someone ought to do something. I wish I could do something. And there's nothing you can do. You feel powerless. Uh, imagine the powerlessness Daniel feels here, overwhelmed. There are these two fighting armies, and where do I fit in all of this? How do I affect this at all? It's scary. It's hard. Oh, by the way, before I go any further, um, you're familiar with the term greatest of all time, right? Theologically, theologically, according to the Bible, Alexander the Great, as far as conquerors go, is the goat. Really bad joke, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really, 
really bad. <laughs> so bad. So he has this image here, and, and it's, you can imagine how overwhelmed Daniel feels. The same way we feel overwhelmed when we see the news, and we're like, somebody's got to do something. I wish I could do something. What can I do? I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing it can do. Just overwhelmed beyond his power. Uh, Maybe not to the extent of what Daniel's feeling with this vision here, but what are things that overwhelm people? Just, what do you think? What are things that overwhelm people today? Bills. What's that? Their job, yeah. Sickness. Pain. Oof, yeah. I got this tennis elbow thing going on. I don't know. I'm assuming it's from picking up the baby. And it's just like, it's so annoying. <laughs> Debt. Yeah. Anyone? Well, no, don't raise your hands. But yeah. Actually, if everyone, 98% of us would raise our debts. I know, because I look at the stats. Debt. How many of us are in debt, right? Yeah, debt. Oh, it's so overwhelming. What else? Mental health. Ah, yeah. It's hard to be mentally healthy right now. What else? Life. Yes. You know, I was trying to come up with a list myself. I figured I'd ask you guys. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then I said, you know what? Let me stress out the congregation a little bit more than they already are by giving them a list of things they should be stressed out about. So I found this from a blogger, uh, Jerry Renee. Uh, and she listed things in life that overwhelm. Housework, keeping the house organized, keeping up with clutter, messes getting out of control and spilling over into the other rooms. I can't keep up with the dishes, amen. I can't keep up with the laundry, double amen. Keeping the car clean, that's an, you're supposed to do that? Uh, parenting, shopping with kids, keeping up with clothes that as kids outgrow them, mealtime struggles, kids are unpredictable, embarrassing behavior, being stuck on a schedule, tantrums, keeping up with kids' extracurriculars, doctor's appointments, diapers, <sighs> relationships, judgment from other people, especially in regard to parenting choices, everyone's favorite pastime, social media, Making new friends, making new friendships, not enough time for spouse, saying no, saying no to family, dealing with difficult members of the family, loss of a loved one, work, finding a job, quitting a job, stress at work, work-life balance, dealing with difficult personalities, finances, money stresses, arguments about money, keeping the bills down, paying the bills, food, meal planning, eating healthy, making healthy meals with little time, grocery shopping, cleaning up after the meals. That's the worst thing. You've already made the meal. Now you've got to clean up after it. I spent more time working on this thing than actually enjoying it. Self-care, finding time for myself, operating with too little sleep, coping with childhood trauma, self-criticism, unread books. That, that, that is a high, yeah, I got a stack of books. I don't need to buy any more books for the rest of my life. You know what I do? I buy more books. Balancing it all, running late, getting started when there's too much to catch up on, birthdays, holidays, being pulled in too many directions, thinking of the things I could do better, feeling guilty about not doing enough, unrealistic expectations, no end in sight, to-dos that I haven't done yet, things that, or to-dos that other people have given you, right? Things I would like to do but can't find the time. It's hard. And that gets serious. You could be sued. You could be going through a divorce. You could feel helpless during political elections. Right? All of these things, overwhelmed. That's what Daniel's feeling. He's like absolutely overwhelmed with life. He's, he, the people of God, us, the church, we're like, what can we do against such evil and such power? Oh, what should we do? Don't worry, it gets worse. 
Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Verse 9. So out of one of them, so the, the four horns, out of one of the horns came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That's Jerusalem. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars threw it down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So something's going on here with this other horn that came up from the four horns. I mean, this thing is acting evilly and so, so much to the point where the good, holy sacrifices in Jerusalem have stopped. What does this mean? Let's uh, look over at verse 23. Verse 23, it says, uh, Gabriel's given him the interpretation here. He says, and at the latter end of their kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many." Uh, this is uh, uh, biblical scholars all agree, which is crazy, crazy. Biblical scholars don't agree on anything in the apocalyptic literature. They all agree. This is talking about the Greek ruler Antiochus IV, also called Epiphanes. What an arrogant name, Epiphanes. If you have looked at me, you have seen God. This is the name he gave himself, right? What an arrogant name. Antiochus IV came into Jerusalem, and with the second temple that had been rebuilt, he came and he could not solidify the people under his power. And so what he did is he went into the holy temple of God, where only believers were supposed to go in. He entered into the Holy of Holies, and he brought in a statue, an idol of Zeus, a pagan god, placed it in the temple, and to add injury to insult, or the other way around, he, he, he took uh, swine, he took hogs, and sacrificed them in the temple. And if you know your Torah, pigs are unclean animals. They shouldn't enter anywhere within Jerusalem, let alone the holy temple. And he did away with worship of the one true God. For a period of three years, there was no true worship of God. In fact, for a period of six years, there was no proper worship of the one true God in the temple of God. He defiled it. He is a person, as John says in the book of 1 John, a type of antichrist, someone who sets themselves up against God and against his people. And as we talked about last week, that spirit is alive and well and continues to influence people to this day until the very end. I mean, can you imagine? You talk about fighting against religious liberty. What happens when religious liberty is threatened? What happens when religious liberty is under fire? Fight, fight, or flee. Or fight, flight, or freeze. Um, we, like I said, we enjoy incredible religious liberty here, but there are issues that we face, isn't there? 
Uh, back in 2014, uh, the mayor of Houston, uh, she had some uh, political program that she wanted to get through, and she felt that the pastors of Houston were thwarting her. So she subpoenaed every Houston pastor uh, for their sermons for like the last six months or something like that. You talk about religious liberty violation? <sighs> what? Are you kidding me? Right, most of them weren't even involved. Most of them weren't even like, they, they weren't, but, but no, you have to tell me exactly what you were teaching in your church and what you said. I want to make sure you're not my political enemies. Whoa. Fortunately, the story goes that pastors around the country, myself included, we all just mailed her our sermons recently and just flooded the post office with sermons. Uh, and eventually uh, they relented. I mean, that's a huge violation. Uh, you talk about, uh, I know there's been a lot of talk about taking tax-exempt status away from churches, right? And, uh, and, and, and the thought process with that is, and the reason why our founders said churches are, are tax-exempt is because the power to tax is the power to coerce, right? <laughs> we all know it. We all feel it as tax-paying citizens. The power to tax is the power to coerce. That's why if you have children, you get a tax credit because the government has invested interest in us having children and continuing the country, right? They have vested interest. So what do they do? They offer us tax breaks if we have children. The power to tax is the power to coerce, right? When I was a kid, a pack of cigarettes cost like a, a dollar. I don't even know what they cost now. They cost like 12 times the, the, the cost of a gallon of gas because the government says, we don't want you smoking. So we will add this sin tax, as they call it, to, to, uh, to cigarettes so that you will not smoke, right? So now you're paying like, I don't know, $12 a pack or something like that, right? Uh, most of that is taxes. The power to tax is the power to coerce. And so the founder said, no, no, we can't. If, if we allow them to, to tax our religious institutions, they can coerce the religious institu institutions into teaching and into not teaching. We're going to tax you more if you meet. We're going to tax you less if we meet. Uh, it's a problem, right? Fortunately, every time that's come up, people have quashed it and it hasn't gone there, but the voices get louder and louder. Like, let's, let's coerce them. And if you tax churches, synagogues, mosques, you're going to be taxing our consciences, it's not good. It's not a good situation. Uh, you talk about what, where else do we see religious liberty? Along those lines, zoning laws. Now, in New York State, praise God, I was doing some research, and zoning for churches is actually pretty generous. This is one of the most generous uh, states in the country uh, for, for zoning law for churches. However, when I was in California, where I, I was doing ministry for five, six years, it was the worst. You couldn't put a church anywhere. And then we moved to Michigan, and we were middle of nowhere in Michigan, and I thought, haha, we were meeting in a church that was meeting in a, a, a high school gym. We thought this is going to be fine. I'll be able to find property. No. Do you know there's only one nation worse for zoning regulations against church, or one state that's worse than zoning regulations against churches? Do you know what that state is? Take a guess what that state is. It's Michigan, right? And they zone for something called assembly. And assembly only applies, they say assembly so they don't say churches so that they didn't, you know, get angry people. Uh, assembly only applies to churches or mosques or synagogues, houses of worship, right? So you could have a parcel of land where you could put a restaurant there, you could put a school there, you could put a strip club there, you can't put a church. So when we were looking for a church home, oh my goodness, we couldn't find anything because it wasn't a zoned for assembly. Over and over and over again. 
throughout the, the tax code. And here, even in New York, while the state is pretty good, if you want to plant a church down in Manhattan, you cannot, well, for a long time, you couldn't use the public schools. A lot of times what church plants will do, they'll rent the public school. It's not being used Sunday morning. My church in California, we rented the public school. And you know, it was really helpful because we talked to the administrators. They're like, your money that you're paying in rent, we can have a multiple uh, of extra helpers, right? We can hire aides for the classroom that we can't with regular state aid because we have the thousands of dollars that you guys are giving us, right? So it was a helpful mutual thing. But New York State said, or New York, excuse me, New York City said, no, we can't have that. We're gonna, we're just gonna get rid of that because someone's gonna mistake it and say, oh, there's a church meeting at this school. I guess the school believes in Christianity now, right? Like, no, no, we're renters, right? That's, That doesn't follow the line of logic. Now, currently, there is an injunction uh, that's allowing them to do so, but there's no one there because they've all been run out and nobody wants to start a church there because eventually you're going to lose the space again, as everyone feels, right? Religious liberty, why? What do we do? What in the world do we do when religious liberty is threatened? Oh, oh, that's one more thing. I'm not going to get into this too deep, okay? So whatever side you're on this, fine. Keep keep your feelings. But COVID-19, right? Remember COVID-19? Um, we had lockdowns. We had we couldn't meet and everything. Fine. I get that. that this is wise to begin to, to start off that way. But as certain states and municipalities were opening back up, and they were like, okay, uh, restaurants, you can meet again. Okay, schools, you can meet again. Okay, uh, strip clubs, you can meet again. Um, concert venues, you can meet again. Churches, nope, got to stay closed. Got to stay closed. Well, why? Because you guys sing. Well, what about the concert venue? <laughs> well, we only allow bad musicians here, and no one wants to sing with them, so it's fine. No, right? Like, that, that was real. Just come on, right? Wherever you stand on the issue, right? As, as, but if you're opening, you're allowing a concert venue, but you're still saying, no, 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 churches, you're too dangerous, right? Obviously, your, your bias against religious liberty is showing. What do we do, though? What in the world do we do when religious liberty is threatened? So verse 13, we get the last part of the vision. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Jump over to verse 25 for the... The last part of verse 25 it says, and then he, so this is the, the Antichrist, this is Antiochus IV, the guy who arrogantly called himself Epiphanes, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. So he's going to set himself up, up against God himself, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So what, what he's saying, and we, we know from history, we not, we're not exactly sure how Antiochus IV died. Uh, we have two conflicting arguments. But you know what? He didn't die when there was an insurrection. He didn't die when there was people who rose up against him and and fought against it. That's not how he died. He died either by sickness, he was suddenly struck by an illness and died, or, uh, well, actually, he was struck by a sickness and fell off his chariot and then got stuck under the chariot wheel and died horribly that way. Yeah, picture that. Um, Don't picture that. Uh, Or, or, 
he, uh, he committed suicide. Um, but it wasn't by, by the human hands. God had somehow reached out and stopped him. And then in the uh, non-scriptural book, the Maccabee books, uh, we're told about how where we celebrate Hanukkah, how the, the temple was purified again after the temple or the uh, idol of uh, Zeus was set up and the, uh, the pork was sacrificed there. But it wasn't done by human hands. It was done by God. In the midst of this, Daniel sees his, his people being faithful. In the midst of this difficulty, God's people need to be confident in God's power. I mean, think about what happened there. For six years, they couldn't meet in the temple to serve God. Six years. Like, I, I don't know about you, my previous church, uh, the Orchard Church in Northern Michigan, we, we had two services, and they were both getting over capacity right before COVID hit. And then uh, we, were, we were getting ready to start a third service, and that third service was going to be our church plant. The plan was we were going to bring a church planter in. That person would work with the third church service, and then we would plant the church across town and start another church service. That's where our growth was at that point. And then COVID hit. And then COVID continued and continued. And then when we came back, it wasn't the same. And then, right? We were, we were, when I left, we were down to one service. We were down to one service. Uh, and we were in Michigan. We were only closed for, I don't know, eight, eight weeks or so. And we had online classes and teachings. Um, my guess is same story here, right? You know, you close it down and then, and then people don't come back. And it's like, man, what happened? What happened? Can you imagine if it was six years? Who's coming back? So the, the fear, the concern is to say, what do we do? Religious liberty is threatened. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We've got to fight. Oh, no, we're going to run away. I'm not dealing with this anymore. It's too hard. Or you freeze and just pretend that there isn't any problem. None of those is helpful. Instead, when religious liberty is threatened, whether you're talking about our brothers and sisters in China, in Indonesia, in India, when religious, or here, when religious liberty is threatened, we stand confident that the gates of hell will not overcome Christ's church. We stand confidently. We don't run away. We don't freeze. We don't stop. No, instead, we stand and, sit and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a hurt, lost, dying world that needs his hope, that needs to know there's a God in heaven who loves them, that needs to know that their sins can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand in confidence knowing the gates of hell will not overcome Christ's church. Jesus said so in the Gospel of Matthew. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And the gates of hell is a euphemism. It's In the ancient days, you would say, you know, if the enemy is marching upon your, your, your citadel, you'd say, oh, the gates of Persia are upon us. Right? He was talking about the army. No matter what Satan throws at us, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter how big our sins are, nothing will overcome Christ. Nothing will overcome his church. We need to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I've referred to a number of times, modern psychology, I know this is a simplification, but it's a good simplification and a true simplification. When we face fear, when we are concerned, we have typically three responses. We fight we flee or we freeze. Some of us, when we see religious liberty, you know, Christianity is kind of waning. It's not as culturally acceptable to be Christian anymore. We run away. We're like, nope, peace out. I'm gone. I'm not having anything to do with this. I'm deconstructing. Uh, we run away. Or, or we freeze. 
And many people just, they like stick their head in the sand and they're like, nope, I don't see a problem. What problem's here? There's no problems. Everything's fine. High fives, everyone. Or there's other that fight. And it's interesting because you would think that that fight response is not fear. But it is. Right? You see all these coalitions uh, coming up. I, I was talking with a, a friend of mine out on the uh, West Coast, and he was saying he's got so many Christian friends, they're giving money to this, uh, uh, this political action league that is just fighting Christian battles with ungodly means over and over. And everyone believes in this because we've got to fight. We've got to fight for our rights. Well, you know what? I serve a Savior who laid down his rights for the good of others. And you know what? I trust in the power of the risen Lord. I trust in his gospel more than I do the political system, more than I do anyone in Congress or the executive branch or who's running the Supreme Court. I trust in the power of Christ to transform our culture more than anything else, more than my ability to orate us out of this situation, more than my ability to physically fight or, and my goodness, what a scary thing. Most, they're, they're, the, the numbers are going up. They've been following these numbers for the past 20 years. The number of people who say that political violence is acceptable are increasing. Isn't that terrifying? Even among Christians. No. We don't transform this culture that way. What is our tool? What is our weapon? It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't violate people's consciences. We don't. Instead, we say Christianity doesn't impose, it proposes. And church, you and I, we've been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in his resurrection power. If we spent the same amount of money and time evangelizing and sharing the hope of Jesus in a loving and winsome way, what a difference it would make. But instead, that fight impulse (laughs) that many people have, that people are like, what a noble Christian. No. It's a fear response. We need to double down on the gospel of Jesus Christ. When religious liberty is threatened, we stand in confidence that the gates of hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ. Be confident. Be bold. Share the love of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is greater than the goat. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have this vision. There's so much to unpack in it with such little time, and yet we can see Daniel's concern. We, like Daniel, feel helpless, and it's fearful. It's scary to see what's happening out there. And Father, I pray right now for this congregation that, Holy Spirit, you will come And you will reveal to their hearts where they are most likely to respond to the fearful things happening out there in the world, whether they're going to fight or run away or or just freeze and pretend the problem doesn't exist. And Holy Spirit, as you reveal that to our hearts, I pray, I pray you'll show us a better way. Help us to stand with confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting that your gospel can and will transform hearts. Your gospel can and will transform cultures. That salvation will come 
through Jesus alone. Transformation will come through him. Father, give us that boldness. Give us that gentleness. Give us that love, that confidence in the face of difficulty that we need. May we live and be transformed in such a way and love in such a way that people say, there's something about that Jesus. Father, change us. Fill us with confidence. Help us to share the love of Jesus, that Jesus came, died for our sins, and rose again so that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. That life you have given us, let us give it to others. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You know, we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and all the persecution they're facing. And do you know, in just about a decade, they think, experts think, that China will become the most populous Christian nation in the world. Wow. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. May we be as faithful as our brothers and sisters in Christ in China. May they, the boldness, the love, the compassion they have for Jesus be the same love and compassion and boldness we have too. Let me bless you as we go. Father, I pray that you help us to stand, to stand when we face difficulties, that we stand upon the word, we stand upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, his hope, his love, his righteousness. And that as we do so, we see the world transformed around us, not by our might, but by the power of the Spirit and the blood of the Lamb. May our hope be found in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.